0: We continue this week with our series called Belief Matters, where we examine and dig into a little bit of of the creeds of the church. Um, I started with looking at mainly the Apostles' Creed, uh, but sometimes we use the Nicene Creed, which is really uh, the Apostles' Creed uh, with with some elongations in it, and especially for last week and this week, those elongations are really important. So you'll notice that we're going to say uh, the Nicene Creed um, for, for this week as well. Um, our text today that, that revolves around the Holy Spirit, you heard the, the gospel texts were really um, positioning around seeing the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life and work and ministry all through his ministry. So if you didn't catch that thread, that's why there were these random verses all throughout, is that Luke, especially in his gospel, uh, paints a picture of the Holy Spirit's activity in a way that is very fresh um, and in also a way that I think we don't catch it because sometimes we just read through, well, he was filled with the Spirit. He went along and did this, or the Holy Spirit's upon me. Um, but those things are actually intentional uh, by, by by Dr. Luke as he employs those things. This text from Romans 8 um, is is probably, to me, one of the most powerful passages of Scripture um, from Paul. And, and, and you might be familiar with parts of it, but I want to invite you to hear, um, hear the totality of, of, this, of this work from, uh, in chapter 8 from verses 9 to 27 this morning. Paul writes, but you aren't self-centered. Instead, you are in the Spirit, if in fact God's Spirit lives in you, If anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to him. If Christ is in you, the spirit is your life because of God's righteousness, but the body is dead because of sin. If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also through his spirit that lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you are going to die. But if you put to death the actions of the body with the spirit, you will live. All who are led by God's spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back into, again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With the spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ if we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that is going to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits, breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it but in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. We know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains up until now. And it's not only the creation. We ourselves, who have the spirit as the first crop of the harvest, also grown inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. We were saved in hope. If we see what we hope for, that isn't hope. Who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit comes to help our weakness. We don't know what we should pray, but the Spirit itself pleads our case with unexpressed groans. The one who searches hearts knows how the Spirit thinks, because it pleads for the saints, consistent with God's will. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth, the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The line that we say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, feels a little bit weak and doesn't really cut it for the experience that we can have of the Holy Spirit. In fact, by that statement, with no added description of all that the Holy Spirit does and the Holy Spirit's activity, it seems like we kind of hardly believe in the Holy Spirit. So my question is, who is the Holy Spirit, and how does the Holy Spirit work? The Holy Spirit, friends, is our experience of God today. The Holy Spirit is our experience of God Today, Luke Timothy Johnson writes, humans continue to experience God in the world, and because of this experience of God, an appreciation of the work of the Holy Spirit must inevitably continue to grow beyond the limits provided by the New Testament. So in other words, how we experience God in the Holy Spirit, how Christians for 2,000 years have experienced God through the presence of Holy Spirit through the presence of the Holy Spirit, impacts how we view and understand God's operation in our lives, even beyond the pages of the New Testament. There has to be some room to understand God's working that involves our experience of God, and and that is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, in, in the purpose of the Creed, this section on the Holy Spirit, we could say that the entire paragraph that comes after, I believe, in the Holy Spirit is actually made possible by the Holy Spirit's work. In other words, when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, that actually all of that is under the work of the person of the Holy Spirit, Right, So we are actually saying a lot about the Holy Spirit, but i got three more weeks to talk about some of those things under there, and so I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the Holy Spirit and how it worked and, and how these creeds kind of developed that. So after this Arian controversy we talked about last week, uh, where Jesus there was really gathered around the person and work of Jesus, and they, they kind of hammered that out in the year 325. Uh, all the church leaders gathered in a place called Nicaea. They, they gathered, and they kind of hammered out what it meant that Jesus was fully God and fully human and how, and how to get after that. But all they did in that one was say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I think because they didn't have time to get into it. And so what they did was gather in 381. Granted, it probably wasn't many of the same people gathering in 381 that gathered in 325, especially with life expectancy around that time. But they gathered anyway at Constantinople in 381 where they worked out what we have in our Nicene Creed today that says we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who is spoken through the prophets. So we're going to focus in on a little bit what that means for us today. Because so, this expansion was needed to show that the Holy Spirit is both in substance and in power, God. In other words, the Spirit is not just a force, but the Spirit is also a person. One could have said from the Creed in 325 or from the Holy Spirit's work that, that, the, that the Spirit is sort of akin to the force in Star Wars, okay? Where it's like, it's kind of around, kind of doing some stuff, making people do cool things with lightsabers and things or making Baby Yoda save things and, and whatever, but like, it. If you don't get the Baby Yoda reference, you got to see, he's too cute. But anyway, um, so if you don't know what I'm talking about at all, we'll talk about it later. But anyway, um, but, but it's not just a force, that the Spirit is a person. The Spirit is, is, is someone whom we can pray to. That's why it says, with the Father and Son, is worshipped and glorified, that the Spirit uh, is active and can be known. So we see is that the Holy Spirit, and what, and what the, the creed writers wanted to lay out, is that the Holy Spirit can be known in this relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of God in Trinity. And one way we see that activity is that the Spirit is the very Spirit of Jesus. So in other words, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit who is present in Jesus' conception, the Spirit who descends upon Jesus in his baptism like a dove, the Spirit who actually is empowers Jesus and then pushes Jesus into temptation right after his baptism. The Spirit who is with Jesus in the beginning of his ministry, as he proclaims, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, that Spirit, the Spirit is the same one who will overflow Jesus during his life and ministry. That spirit, the Holy Spirit, is active and moving in the ministry of Jesus. That's why those passages from Luke are especially important. And then in the New Testament, what we see is that Jesus receives this Holy Spirit from the Father, and he also bestows the Spirit upon the believers, right? So he receives the Spirit. God knows how. I'm not going to try to figure that one out scientifically or anything. But he receives the Spirit, and then he also gives it to the disciples, right? In Matthew 28, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He promises what will happen in Pentecost. In John 20, right, he, he goes with the disciples. He gathers them, and he, and, and he breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I send you, right? So Jesus receives the Spirit, and he's the giver of the Spirit. Adam Hamilton says it this way when he talks about the Spirit's activity. He says, whatever one member of the Trinity does, the other members do as well. Wherever one member of the Trinity is, the others are as well. This this concept that he's describing is known, we could call it mutual indwelling, It means that wherever Jesus is, the Father and the Spirit are present. I like to think of it, there's an ancient Greek word that's called perichoresis, all right? Choresis is the same word we get choreography from. And peri means around, like a periscope, right? So so it meant dancing around. It's the way the early church fathers described the activity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God was constantly in community and in communion with God's very self, from all time. There was never a time when the sun was not, there was never a time when the Spirit didn't exist, right? In Genesis 1, the first words it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of creation. So we use this phrase sometimes with kids. We say, like, you're going to ask Jesus into your heart. We, see, we use that phrase. And it's kind of misleading, because we're really actually asking the Spirit into our hearts, who brings with him the presence of Jesus all the time. Does that make sense? So, 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 so the Spirit's activity is, is, is moving in and around and in our lives today. But the Spirit's activity is also one that is surprising. And I think Romans 8 describes this for us very well. Listen to this litany of all that the Holy Spirit does. Just in those verses that I read to you in Romans 8, the Spirit lives in us, the Spirit is our life, The Spirit puts to death our fleshly actions. The Spirit leads us. The Spirit reveals our identity as God's children. The Spirit is the first crop of the harvest, and the Spirit prays for us. This Spirit dwells in us, the Spirit of Jesus, and is actively moving in our lives. Friends, our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters, they have this right a little bit more than we upstanding Methodists, okay? If you've ever been to a church that you might say is filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, that maybe is rocking and rolling a little too much for your comfort, um, or, or, or where you don't know exactly what's going to happen that day, I would argue that there are times when they get this work a little bit better, that the Holy Spirit can be moving and active, that the Holy Spirit can press us and woo us and beckon us in ways that are beyond the prescripted ones that we know. Now, granted, um, we, we might be uncomfortable with some of those ways, and we might say, you know what, well, sometimes that's prescripted and all that kind of stuff. But all I'm saying is that our friends in those traditions, uh, they understand that the Holy Spirit cannot be contained That God can't be contained by just the order that we want to give to God or the box that we want to give to God. So I'd like to look at what this scripture in Romans 8 tells us about the Holy Spirit's activity in our lives just through the lens of prayer and the way Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us in prayer. In verses 15 to 16, he describes it in one way. So hear this you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear. Specifically, he's referencing Egypt, referencing the people of Israel who were in slavery. He's saying, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear. But you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as God's children. With this spirit we cry, Abba, Father, the same Spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. Right, so he's saying that in, in our prayer, the Holy Spirit assures us of our adoption as the sons and daughters of God. That the Holy Spirit can give us that assurance of peace. That the Holy Spirit can show us who we are as God's children. That we can call this God Abba, just like Jesus did in the garden before his death. Which is a term that meant daddy. Or something like it, a very intimate calling upon God. But we don't only receive this spirit of assurance and adoption. Because the text also says this in verses 26 and 27. In the same way the spirit comes to help our weakness. We don't know what we should pray. But the spirit pleads our case with unexpressed groans. The one who searches hearts knows how the Spirit thinks because it pleads for the saints consistent with God's will. So the Spirit not only assures us of our adoption, the Spirit also groans with us as we wait for the redemption of all of creation. Now, you might say, what the heck is that talking about? I want to dig a little bit deeper into what the redemption of creation means So Paul writes a lot, especially in this text in Romans and other places, about the period of time that we are dwelling in right now. This time between Jesus' ascension into heaven and the time when he will return and set the world to rights. The Holy Spirit is the connection between these two ages. So in one sense, we followers of Christ are already living as the adopted children of God in this world. We can have this assurance that Paul talks about. We can live as God's children. We can try as a community of faith to embody the ways of the King. And in another sense, we long for the day to get here when Jesus will return and all creation will be restored That's where we live. The final verses of Scripture in Revelation 22 say, Maranatha, amen, come Lord Jesus. The prayer and the plea of the church is one both that says, we are assured that we are your sons and daughters, and will you please come back and make it right, because we see all the mess of this world. We are holding those things all of the time. And what this passage is saying is that the Holy Spirit is the one prompting that within us. Paul describes the groaning of creation first, right? He says that creation is groaning like a woman in labor pains awaiting their fulfillment. And if you're a woman who's ever had labor pains and you're sitting here right now, you still get shudders about that day. You understand what labor pains are in a way that no man has ever been in pain. Sitting in this room, we are whips compared to you, right? So, so, so creation is groaning, it says. It is, intrave- it is waiting the day when this new creation will be birthed forth. And then Paul says that we believers, the followers of God, are also groaning as we await for our redemption as the true sons and daughters of God, that we are waiting for it all to be made right. And Paul doesn't stop there and say, hey, that's good for you, saints. Keep groaning. You're going to suffer some tough life. No, he then moves on and he says, God in his very self is groaning with you. Creation groans. Brothers and sisters, groan. And God in God's very self through the presence of Holy Spirit is actually somehow bringing prayers to bear. Sometimes when you've been through it and you're in the roughest place of all, and you're in the deepest pit that you could imagine, and something within you prompts some kind of prayer that really doesn't have any words expressed to it, that really doesn't make any sense. That is the Spirit's life in you, giving voice, giving voice, even if it's just a groan to God, saying, make it right, come and redeem it. N.T. Wright describes this yearning and longing of all creation like this. He says, if one dare put it like this, as God sent Jesus to rescue the human race, so God will send Jesus' younger siblings in the power of the Spirit to rescue the whole created order, to bring that justice and peace for which the whole creation yearns. Friends, the Holy Spirit is the one assuring our adoption, And the Holy Spirit is the fullness of God groaning with us, praying within us, and longing for that day when all creation will be made right. This is the activity of God. This is the nudging and the wooing and the beckoning presence of Holy Spirit. Adam Hamilton says it this way in his book about the Creed. He says, the Spirit not only was a force to be reckoned with, to this day the Spirit continues to be that kind of force. I think many Christians live spirit-deficient lives, a lot like someone who is sleep-deprived, nutrient-deprived, or oxygen-deprived. Many Christians haven't been taught about the spirit nor encouraged to seek the spirit's work in their lives. As a result, our spiritual lives are a bit anemic as we try living the Christian life by our own power and wisdom. Our spiritual lives can be a bit anemic, he writes. Friends, if you have tried to live this Christian life with your own willpower, like if you've ever tried to take whatever sin or addiction that you struggle with and do it on your own, I guarantee you failed at it, no matter what it is. If you try to just do it by your own willpower, you're like a smoker going cold turkey without the patch or something, right? Like, it's tough, and... and, And you're going to, like, it's not going to work too well. And what we need is the Spirit's power within us to change us, to to call us forth. We need the Spirit's activity in our lives. Because, friends, we are not just part of a church and a movement that uses just our brains, right? But we're also one that is called by our hearts and souls, where God is moving and active, And as much as I might like to preach a sermon that gets you to think a little bit, there also has to be some movement of the Holy Spirit within your life for it to change your heart and life. There has to be something going and and driving you deeper into a walk with God, closer into relationship with Jesus. That is the presence of Holy Spirit. Friends, my prayer is that we wouldn't live spirit-deprived lives, but instead lives full of the Holy Spirit's presence and power. Amen.